Oh, welcome everybody to another Off the Circle podcast. Uh, today we're uh, recording at Lifeline Data Centers, uh, and we are lucky enough to have former Mayor Greg Ballard, uh, Mayor of Indianapolis, with us. Uh, we're going to talk about his new book, Less Oil or More Caskets. based entrepreneurs and business people. Learn from their experience and expertise and have some laughs along the way. Off the Circle, the Indianapolis business scene as you've never heard it before. To my left, I have Frank Leonard with me, co-host Frank Leonard. And uh, we just got finished, by the way, I should announce this. Uh, Lifeline Data Centers has a free lunch and learn typically every Thursday at noon where we bring in uh, guest speakers and talk about the latest in cybersecurity, technology, co-location, uh, hosting, data center technologies, you know, you name it. And uh, and Frank really uh, coordinates a lot of those efforts. So uh, thanks for joining us, Frank. Yeah, pleased to be here, and uh, great another great lunch. Uh, also, happen to have Michael Denny with us here today from Butler University, and uh, these lunches are great. So keep us in mind on Thursdays, and uh, also real pleased to have Mayor Ballard with us. He actually was instrumental in uh, Lifeline Data Center being located out here at Eastgate. So he'll give an opportunity for him to talk about when Lifeline came here to Eastgate. So uh, it's a real good opportunity for everybody to be here on this podcast today. And I'll let Michael Denny introduce himself as well. Sure. My name is Michael Denny. I'm actually a longtime customer of Lifeline since day one here at, uh, at this facility in my consulting career before, but now a network and security architect at Butler University. Um, and it's kind of, uh, you know, showing up for, for lunch and, you know, meeting some other professionals and kind of hearing some, some different topics and things. And, you know, the opportunity presents itself to, to sit down a panel with the former mayor. I, I took it. So here we are. <laughs> you got you to gotta think higher, man. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it is a pleasure having you. And, and, uh, and you've written, uh, you just published this book, uh, Less Oil or More Caskets, a provocative name. Um, so people are going to have to read it. And, uh, and, I, and I think uh, one of the things that I, I should say, too, on this is that this isn't, you know, you, you're a Republican, Yes. So, so people might go, what, mm -hmm. you know, you wrote a book, uh, you know, about, uh, about oil and, uh, and, and the issues that arise with it, but what, what motivated you to write the book? Yeah. I always think about what is moving toward the future. And I really wrote this for the future military. And I want people to understand that because of what we've been doing. And I'll go over that here in a, uh, a little bit, uh, in just a little bit. But, uh, as you know, I was in the Gulf War, Persian Gulf War, 1991. No aha moment there, but that war was about oil. There's no question that war uh, was about oil. Uh, but our national leaders, unfortunately, wouldn't say that. They wouldn't right. uh, use the term. They were talking about countering aggression and expelling dictators and the global economy and things like that. That it was about control of oil throughout the world. That's what that was about. So, But because there was no technology change, there was no really no other solution, we there's, like I say, there was no aha moment at that point in time. But when I became the mayor and I saw the technology changing on transportation, uh, what does that look like? And then I actually started running the numbers, uh, which I had really had not done before. I just, I guess it was just a hunch. And then you find out things like 70% of the world's oil is used for transportation, mm. which is a significant number. And, and so 
when you do more research, can, okay, can we change that? Does that make a difference? Then you find out that 80% of the world's oil reserves are in the hands of monarchs, of national leaders, whose interests are clearly not aligned with ours. And you start putting this puzzle together, like, okay, now what's this, really what's this all about? So what, what I'm really trying to do, like I say, I want our troops to come home from the Middle East. We've been over there since the early 70s. When the British pulled out, uh, we've been protecting the oil supply routes and the infrastructure for the entire world. Uh, since the 70s, and that's a separate mission. I would contend also that the wars that we have fought in the Middle East, including the one I was in, and the Iraq war in, that, in 2003, that's really to stabilize the Middle East right. just so oil can get out of there. Right. But just the, just the mission of protecting the oil supply routes and infrastructure around the world in 2017 cost us $81 billion. Wow. $81 billion. That's over 10% of the mm. DOD budget. And so we really have to look at these things. Plus, it's our troops in harm's way. So we've spent, since the 70s, over $5 trillion. We've lost over 6,000 lives. And, and I hate to say it so coarsely, but it's so we can put gasoline in our cars and diesel in our trucks. Uh, and we don't have much of the oil in, in this country. People think we have a lot of oil. We're producing a lot of oil right now, but that's just a fool's errand. Because 80% of the world's oil is in oil reserves are in the hands of monarchs. And we're producing more right now, but we can't play the long game because we only have 2 to 3% of the world's oil reserves. Everybody thinks we have a lot of oil in this country. We don't compared to everybody else. So, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and everybody's just, just fine. Go ahead, America. Go ahead and produce all your oil because for the long game, we've got it all. Right. And so you have to look at this. And, and all the way to the latest conflicts in Ukraine and, and Russia, that, that was over... Over oil. Well, they right. wanted that port to get their oil out, right? Yeah. So that was, uh, <clears throat> so you just look at these different pieces, and where does, where's the strategic leverage around the world? Uh, and by the way, how was terrorism funded? Terrorism is funded primarily by the sale of oil. Yeah. And so when you start putting these pieces together, this makes a lot of sense to maybe do we have a chance to change this dynamic? I would not have written the book, a typical military guy, as you will know. Uh, you would not complain about something unless you thought you had a solution, unless there was something on the horizon. And the new technology and transportation really is an opportunity here. Uh, people want to move to electric vehicles and other fuel sources for environmental reasons, and that's fine too. But if you don't want to go down that road, this is, there, here's a real strategic reason to move away from oil. And I, I think I outlined that pretty well in the book because it's our troops that are paying the price, it's our taxpayers that are paying the price. As General Conway, former Commandant of the Marine Corps, recently said when he was being interviewed, he kind of put the question back to the interviewer, why are we protecting the oil that goes from Iran to China? That's a really good question. Yeah. But we've been doing that for 40 years. And where does, the, where does that money go? When China sends that check to Iran, where does that go? It goes to terrorists who want to kill us. This is really perverse. This is a really perverse situation that we have going on here. We had to deal with it in the past because we had no other solution. But if 70% of the world's oil is used for transportation, and now we have an opportunity to move away from that dynamic, I would suggest that the America should be sprinting that way as opposed to saying, oh, no, we really don't want to do that. Yeah, I guess basically we've got to, we've got to keep the entire world stable just because oil is such a foundation of our economy. It's a right? critical strategic commodity around the world, like salt used to be for food, right? Those who had a lot of salt back in the day, uh, they, were, they were critical. We still have a salt industry, but it's not a critical strategic commodity 
uh, now because of refrigeration. But this is the same thing that's going on right now. Oil is absolutely critical to everybody's economy for transportation purposes. So maybe we can change that. Lots of other countries are moving uh, away from uh, internal combustion engine cars. In fact, China, India, Germany, France, Britain, Norway, and others are actually saying they are going to ban the sale of internal combustion engine cars in the near future. Ban the sale of them. And that's why the manufacturers are moving toward electric vehicles at the rate that they are. You don't see it necessarily here, certainly in the Midwest and South, uh, who, don't, who don't understand this as much as they do on the coast. But, uh, but we are, the manufacturers are moving pretty rapidly, and you're going to see that by, you're going to see a lot of it in 20, 2020. You're going to see a ton of it in 21 and 22. And you're going to see a lot of cars, a lot of these cars being made. Does that, you know, I mean, I, I know we've got challenges with our electrical grid and everything else. Does that mean a, you know, a huge push for like nuclear power and? Actually, no. I, I, that's one of the questions that comes up all the time. And, and our grid actually is good. It, for this, it's really good. Uh, because most, most charging go, right now, I charge my car overnight when the grid, when there's not much load uh, being put on the grid. So it, it really doesn't have much of an issue. I, I read an article the other day, you, you always have to be suspicious of what you read, but at the same time, you know, I read so much of this that, uh, but one, one article said we can, we can accept 150 EVs kind of right now, as long as the same charging patterns are in place. Uh, they've had a lot of this in California. There's a lot of cars in California being bought. I, I, I think it's, if it's not over 10% of these cars or the new car sales in California, it's very close to that. Uh, and so some neighborhoods have had to kind of upgrade, but it's it's minimal. You know, so the transformer we, in the neighborhood. We basically have a, enough of a surplus of energy in off-peak time. Yeah, we, we uh, do. And yeah. and uh, it's kind of funny. I, I don't know if you ever uh, look at disruption patterns and how things change, but you know you're getting close when people start up, start putting out a lot of purposeful disinformation yeah. on subjects, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and something, something is, that we know a lot their, about. <laughs> when their industry is yeah, maybe sure. threatened. Right. And so, so one of the main ones is, oh, the grid can't handle it. We'll have to do this and this and this. Most of that is just complete and utter nonsense. Uh, it, ju it just isn't true at all. Uh, there are other countries, like India has, does not have a great grid, but the, right. India is actually trying to move very aggressively in this way. China is very aggressive. China is the largest car market. There's more cars made in China, more cars sold in China, and there's more electric cars made and sold in China than anywhere else in the world. And, and they may dominate the market, which I'm not so sure is good for us, right? Right. Uh, because the, the cars are going this way. I just want to get there faster because we can and we should because it's our troops. Yeah. And also, terrorism is funded by the sale of, primarily by the sale of oil. I mean, do you... <laughs> this kind of makes sense, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, in the book, I detail Al Qaeda, Iran, and and ISIS. Well, and, it, and there's there's financial motivation for countries to become terrorist and violent countries right. because there's so much money available they're, if they're, they if they do. <laughs> yes, right? That, that, that's right. And so I go through a military analysis. It's kind of funny. I found research papers, uh, war college papers, back in 2002 and 2003. Uh, quite a while back, uh, saying that we should move in this direction, uh, even before the current uh, technology of cars was was available. They said that that would be a tremendous help to, to be able to uh, lessen the influence of these countries and these terrorist groups because that it, because they get their money from this. It's we've known this for a long time. Like I say in the book, I put the puzzle together. It's a, people know this piece and this piece and this piece. I just kind of put it all together in one place and then. You really do kind of have to ask the question: Why are 
why are we protecting the oil that goes from Iran to China? Yeah. And with that money now going into Iran's hands, which then funds terrorists who want to kill us. Why? But we actually protect the oil. Right. We protect all that. And you gotta, you got to think about things like that. And why are our, we still sending our troops over to do that sort of thing? In the short term, I, I agree we have to do that. But if we start moving away from oil as a transportation fuel source, uh, we can really change this thing out. Well, congratulations on writing your second book. Uh, what lessons learned have you had, you know, from your first book that you published? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a that's a great point. The first one I actually did through Author House was kind of kind of what they call self-publishing a little bit, but with a little help from Author House. This one is through Indiana University Press, so it's a it's a whole different dynamic, and it's very involved, and, and they're very particular about how they do this, but. Uh, uh, I think the main thing you want to make sure of, I, I kind of did this anyway, but you need to make sure you say it directly and that your, your logic, your flow is readable for everybody. So I was lucky enough to have uh, a former University of Indianapolis editor, uh, Peter Newt, great guy. Uh, he helped me when I was writing it and then I went through the Indiana University editing process also. So I kind of had two great editors along the way to kind of help shape this thing. but. You have to be able to say it directly, uh, you know, in the right way, so that people read it and make make sure it's readable. Uh, and uh, when I gave the book originally to IU Press, they they gave it back to me. It's kind of funny. They said, "We want you to flesh out these two parts here." And I, it, you know, whatever you know, I find this out. Whatever you know, you think everybody else knows. Really, not true, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so they had me flesh out the portion. So there's a lot of history in the book, actually, a fair fair amount of history about the history of oil history of automobiles, the history of the Middle East and oil combined. Uh, I, think the, I think the part about the history of the automobile is, is pretty fascinating, actually, because back in 1900, a third of the cars were steam, yeah. a third of the cars were gasoline, and a third of the cars were electric. And no one really knew how that was going to turn out until Henry Ford's Model T changed the game for everybody. People don't realize Stanley Steamer wasn't a carpet cleaner. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's it was right. a car company. It's a car company, right? yeah. And a and a and a very lucrative, yeah. you know, wealthy one. Yeah. And it was actually it was actually the upper crust who was driving the electric cars. A lot of women were driving the electric cars because it was cleaner and mm -hmm. quieter. Yeah. Uh, but once gasoline came along, uh, you know, gasoline was not originally we never uh, Went, uh, we never mined oil for gasoline, right? Gasoline was an unknown byproduct that nobody really knew what to do with it. Uh, oil was originally uh, sought because of kerosene uh, for lamps, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, worldwide, which, uh, and before that, everybody was using whale oil for lamps. So a lot of people think that the discovery of oil saved the whales yeah. So uh, back in the day. So, I mean, there, there's, a whole, there's a whole fascinating thing to this about the how the oil and the automobile combined together to, to get where we are today. And, and, and frankly, it's been good for the economy, but now we have to look at what it's done to us and how we are now protecting it. And, you know, the OPEC countries didn't realize what they had. There was at one time where Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia was actually paying more in U.S. taxes than they were getting from the wow. concession. Yeah. Wow. So that's when I thought when that was probably the beginning of OPEC once they realized that. Yeah. Wait a minute, this is our oil. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but they were actually paying, at one time they were paying more in U.S. taxes than they were actually getting from the sale of the oil that was in their own ground. And a, a lot of the advancements with automobiles, you know, we're talking about torque and longevity and, and distance and everything else. Those have been fixed in the last... Uh, you know, yeah, I think we have got to go a little bit longer, a little bit more on the range anxiety piece. Uh, I th that is what's going to be the big change in the next two or three years. 
SUVs are coming out, a lot of the SUVs. I'm kind of waiting on a couple of SUVs to come out, and, and I want to pick one of those up. Uh, I, I say in the book that if we get a, four, a car that go, or an SUV that goes 400 miles on one charge and, can, and then can be recharged in 10 minutes, I said that will absolutely change the world. Oh, yeah. uh, because then you, the level of convenience is right there for everybody. Uh, the 400 miles, I don't think is going to be much of an issue. I think you're going to see a lot of cars by 21 and 22 that will be well over 300 miles. Uh, you, this year and next year, you're going to see a lot come over 200 miles. I think in two or three years, you're going to see a lot of over 300 miles. But it's the recharging piece that has to get there, has to get safe. It's safe, but it has to get fast and safe, right? And, and that's coming uh, yeah. pretty quickly. Uh, I think you can probably get 150 miles with some of the technology now, 150 miles in about half an hour. Uh, so that's better than it was because that used to be two hours. Now it's now it's about a half hour. So that's all getting faster. People always think yesterday, yesterday's technology is today's technology, and clearly that's not the case. But we get a 400-mile range car, or 350 or 400, that could be recharged in 10 minutes. Why would you ever buy an internal combustion engine car? Uh, because the maintenance on an electric car is, I joke all the time about this, check the tires, check the brakes, make sure there's windshield washer fluid in there. <laughs> there's really not much else about that electric car. Uh, and so the consumer, for the consumer, maintaining an electric car is dirt cheap compared to maintaining an internal combustion engine car. And that's one of the disruptive factors we've got to talk about and figure out because half the gross revenue for a dealership is maintenance. Mm. And we, we still want everybody to make a buck on this stuff. I want the manufacturers to make a buck. I want the dealerships to make a buck. Everybody has to, still has to make money. So we have to figure this piece out. But dealerships are, you know, they fight these things, and I think that's probably because their maintenance dollars will go down Absolutely. dramatically. So what else is keeping you busy besides writing the books? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a fair amount of things. I, I, you know, I was co-founded the Indie Women in Tech uh, a few years back, so uh, we're still doing a lot of that, putting women through coding academies and, and uh, uh, cyber security courses and website management courses over at Ivy Tech and things like that. And I think most people here know that uh, the, the real workforce development gap in lots of areas, but in tech, it's not the four-year degree. It's it's the certifications, it's the uh, two-year degrees, and that sort of thing. So we, we're really focusing on that. We find the women and put them through the training academies. Uh, we also do a, a STEM day for middle school girls once a year, which is great. Uh, yeah. So we and we're still the primary sponsor for the robotics championship, which our state robotics championship is massive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the second largest robotics event in the world for VEC, VEX Robotics. Wow. Second largest event in the world. Our state championship was just a couple of weeks ago. The, the only thing larger is the world championship. Uh, our state championship is so big and has affected so much of uh, uh, the schools. And uh, two years ago, we had like 70 teams in the elementary schools, 70 teams. A couple of years ago, there's over 900 now. Oh. <laughs> Right. Wow. So that makes a difference, right? Yeah. That's the future workforce. And and TechPoint Foundation for Youth, who actually puts on these tournaments for us, uh, and this, if you go to Lucas Oil Stadium, it's in Lucas Oil Stadium. I mean, it's massive yeah. events. Incredible. It's a, it's a big event. But even they were stunned. They said they had to they triple-check the numbers. They actually have more girls in robotics than boys. Well, that's fantastic. That's unbelievable, yeah. right? I mean, that's great. And that's what we need. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we really need that combination of, of diversity uh, to, to really make the teams more productive. And it's, uh, it's, it's been a remarkable journey on the Indian Women of Tech, no question. I'm also at the University of Indianapolis, and uh, I like it down there. Great people. Rob Manuel, the president, is terrific, and so I do a lot of stuff with them. But they have a Ballard Summit every year, and I give a little keynote about uh, 
that the world is not falling apart, essentially. It, it, the title of the, of the uh, event is called Embrace the Future. Uh, but I, in my sense of this, and it's been a lot of kids telling me the same thing, that the high school kids almost think the world is falling apart and isn't going to be there in the future. So I kind of, the first year I told them, no, the world's getting dramatically better and has been for quite a while now. And I gave them stats and they didn't know that. This year I actually talked to them about democracy because there's a lot of work. Uh, a lot of speech out there about our democracy is failing. And, uh, and I said, your democracy is going to be just fine. Yeah, It's yeah. okay. To be. We went yeah. through Andrew Jackson. We went through the Civil War. Uh, you know, we went through FDR trying to pack the court, which is kind of funny. They're trying to do that again. Yeah. But uh, yeah. we went through FDR packing the court. We went through Nixon uh, resigning. And the democracy is still here. Yeah. It's still here. And it'll be here when you grow up, too. It'll be ready for you. you got to work it, but, but it'll be here for you. So I, I give them the positive spin on all this. And... and it's unbelievable how thankful they are to hear that because no one tells them all the good stuff. And so I think in the future, I'll kind of combine those two speeches for the, for the, as we go forward into the future. And I'm thinking about, I don't know whether I should do this or not, but maybe I should do something on a bigger scale about that because the high school students, this, the world is getting way better. Yes. And, uh, People need to know that, and they need to know that because I'm afraid the message they're getting is is completely wrong. I, I think it's amazing. You know, we live in a time where you know you can teach yourself anything. Sounds like a third and, book know. in the making. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, might, be, might be a short book. But yeah, uh, people have written books on that. I mean, Steven Pinker's Alignment Now yeah. uh, right, has a lot of that data in it. Bill Gates puts a lot of that stuff out too, and it's just amazing. I was I was talking to someone the other day, and they they brought up uh, Google Paper Signals. Have you seen this? So Google basically has this program where you can go buy a kit online it's paper that you print out on your and it, it comes with a arduino mm-hmm. you know uh chip control. and voice control and for 22 dollars, you can give it to your kid and they can build a voice activated moving machine 22 dollars and they can learn to code, manufacture, and build a robotic device that's voice activated. When I look at kids, you know, what did I, I had a stick and a hoop, you know, I mean, I, (laughs) like. That's all we could handle. (laughs) But it it is amazing times that we live in. I I, I read in the last Olympics. It's a metal darts. Yeah. yeah. In the last Olympics, we actually had a javelin thrower from. I'm not sure what country in Africa, but he taught himself through YouTube. Like he didn't have a coach. He didn't have, he taught and he made it to the Olympics, you know? And, and so I'm with you. I, I look at today's times and I just go, you know, you have the resource at your fingertips, you know, and even our poorest people in our, in our toughest communities have access to knowledge that, that the rest of the world has never had. It's kind of amazing. I'll just give you a couple of them. Since this is just since '90, the uh, the increase in nutrition and healthcare around the world has saved the lives of estimated 127 million babies. Right, just the healthcare and nutrition. Uh, uh, that's that's amazing. Just since '90, and uh, I just, those those sorts of stats are amazing. Ninety percent of the world's children now have at least a primary education. That's a staggering number. That is. Yeah. Compared to what was just 30, 40 years ago, so it's it's just it's just getting better, and we just don't seem to know it. And uh, and, and it correlates with violence is down, murder violence is down. way down. It's all yeah. way down. And yeah. you never hear about that because once one of those happens, and the big and you think about all that, but 
I used to say this all the time, even before this recent phenomenon about uh, people talking about these things. I say, you know, a long time ago, we most of the world, 99% of the world, was led by a king who could lop off somebody's head with no consequences whatsoever. Right. Uh, because he was the king. And it, it happened. And the whole towns were destroyed because they they sacked the town and, and killed everybody. Right? right. I mean, by the hundreds of thousands. And this, I mean, this is... <laughs> this does not happen today, right? Right. right <laughs> this does right. not happen today. It used to happen. Yeah. And uh, and so I, I mean, it's just dramatically better. And I hope people understand that. And I just, uh, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of issues out there, but uh, the, in the bigger picture, it's not really a close call. Absolutely. What what actionable advice will people get out of buying your book? You what know, I really want them to do, I, I you know, I'm not uh, I'm not into this cash for clunkers thing. Don't go turn in your car and, and uh, do this. But I would suggest that the technology right now, where we are right now, your next you have at your next new car, you really have to look at this. Do you want to plug in hybrid, which will give you electric miles, and then convert to gas, or do you want or if you're just driving around town, driving regionally, can you get an all electric car? Yeah. Uh, that has over 200 miles on it, and I think you need to really look at that. And I won't, I won't go out publicly right now and kind of chastise people because I know what the technology is right now. But in about two years or three more years, I might do that because the the cars, at that point in time, will probably be at a point where, why are you buying an internal combustion engine car if, if this is available to you? You get all the convenience of all this. If the charging is across America, uh, which I don't know if you know the Electrify America. I don't know if you know all that or stuff or not, but uh, that's going on. But uh, if the infrastructure's in place and the cars are there, uh, really by certainly by 22, uh, uh, you know somebody's going to ask the question: Why are we Do you support our troops or or do you not? Do you right. want to fund terrorism or do you not? I mean, that's that's uh, those are questions that would be legitimately asked in about two to three more years. That's fast. That's coming up quick. It is. Uh, the book is available everywhere? Everywhere, yeah. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, okay. anything you want. It's even on the Walmart, Walmart and Costco websites. <laughs> I mean, just because people, people right. primarily just buy online anyway. So, we'll, or, or through IE Press, obviously. But. And we'll put show notes in for that. I'd also like to give Michael Denny the uh, opportunity to talk a little bit about Butler and, you know, great university. I'd like to give him an opportunity to plug uh, all the great things that are going on at Butler. <laughs> Hey, we're, we're, <laughs> man, there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on. So that's, that's been a, uh, we're currently building a new business school. I mean, we're, we're majorly transforming campus um, and, and they're making a big push toward, you know, innovation and, and thinking differently, right? What's education look like in the next five to 10 years that today just, you just don't see it, you know, their, their ideas and they're, they're making tremendous push toward um, just really being innovative. Um, I, I, I agree. I, I, I've been working with the alternative education side of mm -hmm. Butler, and it's fascinating, you know, just the culturally, you know, most universities can't make that move, right? Sure. And, but Butler is. They've already invested heavily into learning management systems, online learning, certification right. programs, and, and they see the writing on the wall. They see that they've got to have supplemental education for their graduates, mm -hmm. and they've got to have offerings for non-graduates. Right. Yeah, they're absolutely recognizing that it's not just this four-year, you know, residential. Yeah. That's that's not their. That is their bread and butter, but that's that's not necessarily 100% the future going on forever. You know, uh, making a big push toward lowering the cost of education. That's another one. I mean, as a private university that has a pretty high dollar amount, that's 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 an incredible thing to hear, um, coming right from the top. So, 
Um, you know, that's one. They're, they're making a push to get into the public schools. They've got a couple of different charter schools that they, they handle working with IPS. Um, you know, the, the College of Education is kind of working on. So it's, there's, there's a lot of really neat, you know, outside the box things. And, you know, we have the opportunities in IT department to kind of drive that and, and push that. You know, we get a lot of, a lot of possibilities and, and leeway to um, just kind of think of what's next, you know? Oh, so That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, we, I don't think there's anybody in the region that doesn't love Butler. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was telling <laughs> Except the people that lose against them. Well, All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, the, you know, they lost their first round in the NIT. I'm sorry to hear about that. But <laughs> it was kind of funny that the, uh, when they were having their runs, and I, I would tweet out about, uh, Butler or, or IUG and all that stuff. And I did this for everybody who was not from Indiana because I got, I got like 46,000 Twitter followers. And I said, in Indiana, you cheer for your school, you cheer for IU or Purdue and Notre Dame, but everybody cheers for Butler. Yeah. Everybody in Indiana cheers yeah. for Butler. So that's the difference. Yeah. And, and, and that was generally well received. Some of the IU people didn't like that. But, yeah. but, but generally speaking, that's true. Everybody cheers for Butler. Right. Yeah. In addition to their own school. People are, people are amazed when they hear just how big the school is. You know, they think that it's, it's, it's on par like an IU or a Notre Dame. Well, actually, it is on par with Notre Dame. <laughs> with with a, another example of it. In population. Right. Yeah, exactly. With, with, a, with a Purdue or, yeah, as far as number of students. And, and it just isn't. You know, we're, we're certain just that little guy with with a big name and it's it's kind of fun to work at a place like that i think they've done a great job regionally of working with local enterprise too like iupui is probably similar there too oh, yeah. like i'm uh, almost anywhere that i'm going where there's universities involved it's butler and iupui you know yeah they they, they make a big push to be out in the community too yeah. i mean the, the butler business consulting group i mean there, there's a number of different groups and organizations and they're they're really trying to be out there you know they they just got ranked well tied they they, they joke they're number one because they come above you know alphabet <laughs> alphabetically <laughs> tied is the number one college in the in the midwest from an Oregon University in the Midwest, so it's 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 pretty cool, you know, yeah. place to be, and and uh, you know, our president's really pushing us to to keep going with it, you that's know, awesome. get your name out there. Well, that's fantastic. He, he's a, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. And they gave me an honorary doctorate a couple of years ago. Oh, too. that's fantastic. I was very happy with that. They, well deserved. Very you have two of them. Don't you? I do. I do. Marion did also. I love Marion. I'm on the I'm on Marion's president's advisory board, but Dan, Dan Elster is really. A, Really, a great president too. Very aggressive guy too. So we we actually got a lot of all of our places around here uh, have great leaders. I mean, uh, Rob Manuel down at UND and Nasser Pedar at the IEPUI campus. Uh, yeah. Uh, president Danko, President Elster. I mean, it's amazing. The pres the the college leaders around here are really strong. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll put links to, to everything and and people please uh, buy the book. You know, obviously inform yourself. And uh, and make this thing go viral. So put put some reviews on Amazon. Put some reviews uh, wherever you pick up the book at, so that we can get get the sales up. Appreciate it. I can guarantee it. They've never heard this before. Generally speaking, I mean, it's, yeah. They 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 might have heard pieces of it, but putting the puzzle together, I don't mm -hmm. think most people have no clue. Well, I feel I feel like you're giving a unique perspective as both a Republican as a veteran. You know, uh, I mean, and that's as a mayor a, did some things like this too. That, mm -hmm. And as a mayor, oh, yeah. yeah. So, so that's a that's a, a respected position, right? That that you're not coming at this from you know some kind of far left or you know far right, you know, or anything like that. You're coming at this from a practical standpoint. Yeah. Certainly, so, certainly am. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for uh, being on the show. Great to be here. Thanks. All right, sir. 
If you're an Indianapolis-based professional and would like your story to be heard on Off the Circle, contact us at offthecircle.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a glowing review. 